Well, as our kids are leaving, if you would uh, take your Bibles and turn to the third chapter of the Gospel of John, we'll be looking at verses 4 through 8. That's the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verses 4 through 8. And as you're turning, if I, if I could just uh, encourage you to kind of stop and take a look at what the Lord has done over the past four or five years. Um, in terms of a, a heart and a passion for, for missions here at this church, um, I think you'll see that God is moving in unique ways, that over the last four or five years, we've had four families just leave. Um, Gina DeLeon left, the Ackermans left, the Arvins left, the Drakes left, all because they sensed a, a passion for God to take them to a place where they could proclaim the gospel to people who have never heard. And we have high school students and college students whom God is working in even now to, to go. And um, Emily Witt that you just heard, if you, if you don't know her, she's, a, she's the real deal. Um, she has such a passion for the Lord and a desire to serve and a love for Christ. And, and I hope if you don't know her, just stop by and, and listen um, to her talk a little bit because you'll sense um, her spirit. She's one of those people that you can sense without digging too much. And um, so I hope you'll be a part of her development. It's just want to see God just move in God's people, and he's doing it, and I um, just want you to notice. And you'll know, notice also, if you kind of look at the services last week, this week, and the coming weeks, there's going to be a highlight of different mission organizations from Mission Solano and Levin and um, missionaries and so forth, because we're ramping up for our mission conference, which is coming up, which I hope you will attend. With that being said, I am going to pray that God does what only he can do which is speak directly to your heart and my heart in a way that changes us because I cannot do that, but he can. So I want to bow my heart before him and ask him to use me and to, to, to meet, meet with you. Father, I thank you for the fact that you are on your throne. And though the world sometimes looks chaotic and it seems as if evil is on the rise, we know that your plan is working out perfectly. We know that amidst the chaos that you are working everything together for good, um, for the sake of your people who love you and are called by you and for the sake of your glory that in the end we will see that indeed you are seated on high and that you reign in heaven above over the affairs of men and someday when Christ returns then our king will return and you will set things right until that day Lord we pray that you grant us faith and trust ability to love you amidst the difficulties of life and that you would continue to reveal the depth of your grace, love, and mercy and power towards us who believe. I pray particularly that you would meet each person here, Lord, that you have a word for them and that they would be yearning to hear a word from you and that you would meet us heart to heart, soul to soul, spirit to spirit. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the lessons it seems like the Lord teaches me, and he has to teach me over and over and over and over again, is the fact that I'm not in control. Um, I'm the kind of person who I, I tend to want to grab the steering wheel, and usually when I do, it backfires. And then the Lord's like, I got things under control. Stop take, trying to take control of what I'm doing. I mean, that's, that's a lesson I've had to learn over and over and over again. And I think it's a lesson probably most of us need to learn over and over and over again because there is something intrinsic to the fallen human soul that wants and gravitates towards control, taking the wheel, 
and trying to make things happen on our own. I mean, that's just basic human nature. We gravitate towards control and exercising power over things so that we can achieve our own desired end. In fact, Webster's Dictionary defines control as this. It is to exercise restraining or directive influence over someone or something else. That is to exercise power over. Uh, another dictionary uh, um, defines control as this, as to exercise authoritative or dominating influence over others or other things. Now, most of us don't like the words dominating or authority or rule, especially as Americans. You know, we didn't like that King George thing, so we don't want any king ruling over us. You know, nevertheless, we have in our hearts this gravitational pull towards domination and towards exercising power and taking control and driving the steering wheel. Now, on a very benign level, I think one could argue that most of the technological advances that have taken place have have advanced for the particular reason of giving us more direct and personal control over the world around us. So back in the day when you has to have, had to actually use muscles to get up off the couch and walk over and change the channel on your television set, now you can sit there like a king on a throne and with the simple push of a button, you can dominate your television and up pop Survivor. I mean, that's the kind of control we now have. I don't know if, it, last time I've watched somebody get up and actually change the channel, I can't remember. I think it was back when there was black and white TVs. Or uh, for those of you who like playing the stock market, my guess is you probably have an online internet trading account, maybe an E-Trade or something, because it gives you more direct, immediate control over your investments. It gives greater control. Um, that we have in our cars now, um, individual climate controls. So if you're, not all cars have this, but if you're in the passenger seat, two feet away from the driver, you can adjust your uh, temperature so you're at 68. And then if you're the driver, you have your own personal control, you can set yours to 72. And then if you're in the back seat, if you have back air conditioning and heat, you can set yours to a different climate. Now how you can have three different climates in one little tiny place, I don't know. But we definitely have this desire for control, greater control. Now that's on a somewhat of a benign level, but it infects and permeates almost every level of existence. In fact, one could argue that most, if not all, of the conflicts and controversies uh, that surround us in our society are all ultimately competitions over control. Um, take the issue of abortion, for example. Ultimately, it's an issue of control. Does a woman have the authority and power and right to control the future of her unborn child? Some would say yes, others would say no. Um, you look back at the great um, Civil War, for example. Um, for the North, it was an issue of one man as master should not exercise control over another man as a slave. For the people who fought in the South, it was a different issue of control. It was should federal government control states, the issues of control. And out of that, lots of conflict, lots of death, same thing in marriage, ultimately we've seen probably more marriages dissolve because of a vying for control in the marriage. Because um, all of us have this inner gravitational pull to be in charge. And it, um, it does a couple, there's a couple reasons for that. Um, one is, is that um, we have things that we want and control enables us to achieve our desired ends. So if we control things, then at the end of that control process or strategy, we're happy, or so we think. 
The other thing that it does for us is it gives us a sense of satisfaction and worth, which is why when you lose control, you're utterly humiliated, whether it's losing control of your eating and gaining weight, losing control of your temper, or losing control of your words. There's a sense of humiliation. It's as if the self has imploded. So we like to feel in control. It gives us a sense of power, a sense of worth, and that is why we gravitate towards it. Now, given all that, a lot of people come to the Christian faith, the Christian life, salvation, with that sense of personal control and the power of choice. Because we like to be in the driver's seat. So some will come to the Christian faith thinking that salvation, your faith, true faith, is a matter of personal choice. As if Ultimately, you're in the driver's seat and you're holding the steel, steering wheel of, of salvation, of Christianity, that you're in charge. I know that in one sense, uh, growing up, there was a sense where um, we were in charge of salvation and it wasn't uh, explicitly stated this way. It was more embedded in the routine of if someone wants to be saved, then an invitation was given. And after 16 verses of just as I am, someone would finally walk forward and they would say the sinner's prayer. And it's almost as if we took a I am now a Christian sticker and slapped it on their back and they walked away assured that now you are a Christian. Now I have nothing wrong with the sinner's prayer or people inviting Christ into their heart. But if we think that we cause our salvation and it was the power of personal choice that enacted this thing called the Christian faith, and we're dead wrong. Because what I want to assert to everybody here who is a follower of Jesus, based upon the passage we're about to look at, is that the controlling factor in genuine Christian faith, salvation, always has been and always will be God. When it comes to salvation, he is at the wheel. That's what I want to I want to teach. That's the thesis of it. But I also want to just go on and say that really the essence of what it means to come to a to a saving knowledge of Jesus is a recognition that we never really had control. Which is why Paul says in, in Romans six verse seventeen, chapter six verse seventeen, he says we were enslaved to sin. We were already the domin- under the dominion of another power. We were never in control. But God had to break through that dominion and free us. He is the driver. And part of coming to faith is really having that sense of personal power shattered. Because that sense of personal power and choice really is pride-laden. Makes us think more of ourselves than we really should. So I believe that that is a very important truth for our time, and it is powerfully taught here by Jesus in chapter 3. Now we've already looked at verses 1 through 3. This is a, an encounter between a, a, a very religious, powerful, and well-studied man by the name of Nicodemus who comes to Jesus. I'm just summarizing for those who weren't here. Again, Powerful, well-studied, and very religious. He comes to Jesus and he says in verse 2, he says, We know that you are a teacher come from God. 
He comes to Jesus in a position of control. We have you figured out. You really are from God and a teacher from God. So here is a man coming with a sense of control. And if anybody was going to get him, it would be Nicodemus. But Jesus turns things on Nicodemus and strips him of his sense of control when he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot. That's the word that speaks of inability. Cannot see the kingdom of God. What you think you see, you can't see unless you're first born again. You're not in the driver's seat, Nicodemus. Someone else is, and that someone else is in heaven. Now, that's, that's where we came so far. Now, in response to that, and this is where we pick up the story, verse 4, Nicodemus responds to Jesus' statement that no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above or born again. And Nicodemus said to him, um, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? Now, some have interpreted this as, a, as an honest question, that Nicodemus is so ignorant that he actually thinks Jesus is talking about climbing back inside the mother's room when you're old, which is not a pleasant thought. We've got to give Nicodemus a little credit. He's a very studied, uh, uh, well-informed man. He's not taking Jesus literally here. This is probably a sarcastic um, response, as if, what are we going to do, Jesus? Climb back inside our mother's womb? Which then Jesus now responds, and he explains and expands on what he said earlier on the nature of this thing called being born again, or new birth. Here he says, truly, truly, again, there's that statement of emphasis, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So here now he lays out and expands and explains this whole idea of new birth. And out of his teaching here, you can isolate three different facets of this new birth that I think are important to get our minds around, one of which we touched on last week. The first is that this whole idea of new birth, being born again, of God calling to life the dead soul, is that new birth is a necessity to enter God's family. This isn't for just a few people. Everyone who is Christian must go through this process of being awakened from heaven, called to life, um, blind eyes opened and deaf ears opened. That should be crystal clear in the statements that he made, not just in verse 3, but also in verse 5 when he says, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, and as a parenthesis here, when he says water and the Spirit, he's not talking about two different kinds of birth, as if water is like your physical birth and Spirit is your spiritual birth. He's referring to the same thing. Water, in chapter 4 of John, uh, is used by Jesus to talk about the living water, the Spirit. They're speaking about the same thing. The Old Testament, too, uh, Ezekiel 36 and 37, ties water and Spirit as part of the same thing, uh, which is why later he chastises him. He's like, you're a teacher of Israel. You don't know this? It's like you steeped in Old Testament theology and you didn't get it, but it's there. 
So anyway, end of parenthesis. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, same thing, born of God, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3, it said that you can't see it. Now it's you can't even enter it. In other words, without this, there is no salvation. There is no kingdom blessing of joy and forgiveness and peace and shalom. It's a requirement, and this is the beginning of the Christian life, is this whole idea of new birth, being born of the Spirit, born of water and Spirit. It's not simply, however, not just the beginning of the Christian life, but it also is what inducts us into the family of God, which is what he gets at in uh, verse 6, which says, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and it belongs to flesh, and that which is born of spirit belongs to spirit or is spirit. So just as you were born physically into your family, making you a part of that family, like I was born into the Deckard family, making me a part of the Deckard family, so being born of the Spirit makes you a part of the family of God and identifies you as a son or a daughter of the Lord because you've been born into his family. That's the idea. So it not, doesn't just initiate, it brings us into this thing called the eternal family of God. But a person cannot enter it apart from this birth process, this new birth, this God coming up on the soul and in a supernatural work, reviving it. That's point one that you can draw from this. But there's a second point to be drawn about the nature of this new birth. And that is that new birth is a sovereign work of God's spirit. Sovereign meaning he's in control. That, I believe, becomes crystal clear also when Jesus uses an analogy of wind to the working of the Spirit. So he says in verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes. See that underlined part? We don't control it. It goes where it wants to go, is his point. That's what wind does. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. In other words, there's a sense of mystery to it, but it goes where it wishes. So the Spirit of the living God breathes life into people according to His choice and His determination. We don't control the wind, therefore we don't control the Spirit. The Spirit blows on life and gives life to whomever He wishes. He is in the driver's seat. He is at the steering wheel. He is the determining factor in the Christian life. He is the controlling factor in the Christian life. That's what He says. Now you can't get away from the idea of selectivity. That the wind, the Spirit of God, does not revive or regenerate everyone. That he breathes his life on some and not others. Now I know that that offends our limited and often crooked sense of fairness. And I also know that it humbles a sense of personal power and choice. But again, Jesus and the whole New Testament turns everything on its head and basically says, listen, you can't do it. Only God can. The Spirit is the only one who can awaken life. And I also believe that we have, in this process of new birth, no choice whatsoever in it. Which is why some theologians have created this fancy term called 
uh, monergism or monergistic. Mono meaning one, ergistic meaning energy or power. That is, this particular process, this is God alone breathing life on you, and you had no choice in the prospect. Only after life was awakened, then could you exercise a sense of choice and faith and decision. So the person who, who cries out to the Lord, Lord, save me, for I am a sinful person. That confession and that sinner's prayer is preceded by the fact that God gave life to see and believe that there is a merciful God there to pray to. Life, new birth, precedes our faith and our calling out and our praying. Because he's in the driver's seat. Not us. He is the determining and controlling factor in our salvation. Calls to life his people. Now that that should have a kind of a massive impact on how we see ourselves in terms of our relationship to God and, and how, we, how we approach others in terms of unbelievers, in terms of our own lives, to recognize that you, 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 it's like heads up, seven up. You remember playing that as a kid? And you put your head on the, de- on the, on the desk and you put your thumb up and, and you're waiting for someone to touch your thumb and the thumb goes in you're like, ah, oh, they chose me is the realization that ultimately you didn't choose him, he chose you because of him. And, and because of that, all one can really do in, in understanding their own salvation, their own faith, their own Christianity is just be able to say, as Paul said, he said, oh, but by the grace of God, by the grace of God alone, I am what I am. There's no other explanation. I wasn't smarter, I wasn't more enlightened. It's just that he determined it to be so in his love. And so it creates and should create within us a sense of humble gratitude and worship to say, like Isaac Newton, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, because he knew, Isaac Newton, Isaac Newton, John Newton, who uh, wrote Amazing Grace. <laughs> Did you catch that at the beginning? <laughs> just, we'll make sure that one does not go on the podcast, but <laughs> Dan doesn't know the difference between John Newton and Isaac Newton. Just... Now, you think about the experience of it. A man who knew that he was a dead, wretched slave trader, and God, for no reason in John Newton, said, let there be life. That's it. Let there be life. And so it creates a sense of humility and awe and wonder at the amazing grace of the Lord. Because God is the determining factor. He is the controlling factor in a Christian life so that all worship and praise and credit goes back to him. It also moves in another direction in terms of how we think of other people. I have people around me that I care very much about. My son, my daughter, my youngest son, and, and I have family members, as, as do you. And just to recognize and realize that I am not the determining factor in my son's faith or my daughter's faith or my youngest faith and my sister's faith. That I can't shout them into the kingdom. I can't drag them into the kingdom as much as I wish I could. It's not within me to do. And it's not within you to do. There's only one person who can take a person who is lost and make them found. 
There's only one person who can raise a dead soul, and that's the Lord. So I don't have to try and manipulate people into the kingdom. We don't have to put on a dog and pony show to try and attract them to the kingdom. Only God can raise the dead. That's what he does. And I'll tell you, that, that truth makes you realize, as Dan Overby preached a few weeks ago, you know, our job is to speak the truth. God's job is to awaken souls. He's the only one who can do it. I don't care how persuasive or how logical or how philosophical you are. It's not that that turns the light on. It's this new birth. So new birth is a sovereign work. God's in control of who becomes Christian, who doesn't become Christian. That humbles human pride. A third thing that also comes to light in this passage with regards to what God does in the new birth, and that is new birth is undeniable in its effects. That is, there is an observable change that takes place when a person goes through this process where God supernaturally awakens a soul to faith and joy and the fact that there is a God and he cares about us and he sent his son and died on a cross for our sins and is coming again. I mean, there is an identifiable change. That too comes to light in this passage because, again, using the analogy of wind, he says the wind blows where it wishes. That's the sovereign part. And you hear it sound. In other words, it has an audible effect. You know it's there. In some way, shape, or form, it's a sound waves. Um, but you don't know where it is or where it comes from, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So it, it has a visible impact. You can't see the wind, but you can see it moving things. You can see a tree bend with the wind. You can see tumbleweeds tumble and dirt fly and hair fly because of wind. You know it because it causes an effect. So it is with new birth. There should be an observable, identifiable effect between a person before they came to Christ and after they came to Christ. Visible effect because there is this change that takes place that inclines a person both to trust in, love, and pursue God. And there should be a visible effect. Sometimes it'll be a dramatic physical effect uh, or identifiable, observable effect. I think a good... um, uh, example of that would be uh, the life of Ron Marlett right here. You know, it's a front and center. Uh, you know, at one point he used drugs, and at another point he's like helping people that are using drugs. I mean, what is, what caused this change? Well, I tell you, what Ron would definitely not say was the change was somehow he decided, I'm going to change. It was the power of God came into his soul, raised him from the dead, and he said, ah, I want to live for God now. And that had a dramatic change. Now, for other people, it might be more subtle. Now, in my case, it was probably a bit more subtle because I grew up in a Christian home and I had Christian influences, so there wasn't this dramatic black to light. But there still was a change. Even meeting people who used to know me in high school and meet them on Facebook and they find out what I'm doing, they, like, laugh uncontrollably. <laughs> Danny Decker does what? And I, you know what? I can tell you right now, it was not because of the power of my will. All I can say is something happened and there was a change. And what I'm saying is Jesus is teaching that you'll know new birth because you'll see some observable effects. And as a side note, I think we ought to encourage each other when we see those visible signs. Paul does it all the time. He affirms the uh, Philippians for their love and for their faith. He affirms the Ephesians for their love and their faith. He sees the signs of grace and new life. And part of 
our being a family is to affirm, brother, without flattery and without lying, I see God developing a spirit of humility and joy in you. That's a sign of new life. But there is visible, identifiable effects of new birth. And if there isn't, which brings us back to last week's message, if there is no difference between pre-Jesus, post-Jesus, we have to ask ourselves, did the wind really blow in your life? Was there really new life to begin with? Because there will be a change when God comes into your life. Again, he is the determining factor, the controlling factor. He's the one who originates and starts our salvation. So there you have some basic, and I call it the theology of new birth, according to Jesus. God's in control. It's, new birth is necessary. New birth is a sovereign work. And new birth causes um, identifiable, obvious um, effects. Now, let me push that truth in two directions. One direction is, and I've already kind of covered this. I'll make this super short. Is if you're here, and again, there is no difference. I know I said this last week, but I'm going to say it again because it's that important. If there is no identifiable difference between your life in the world or your pre-Jesus days and your post-Jesus days, You've got to back up and take a look. Were you ever touched by the hand of God? Sobering question, reflection, I know. But an important one, face it. Because once you face that and you realize there is no difference, then you have one of two options. You can, you can, you can stay in your sin and figure, okay, well, I'm just the world. Or... You can fall on your face before a merciful, gracious, and kind God who lifts up the brokenhearted and lifts up the humble and say, Lord, I need the drapes opened and your light to enter this dark heart. I need the fresh wind to blow into this musty, terrible house that I live in. And I can't do it by myself. I've tried. I've read self-help book after self-help book, but the self does not work. So I need you to do it. And I believe that the soul that prays with earnest that prayer, God will not turn away because he lifts up the humble and brokenhearted. The second direction I want to push this is, is a bit of an extension or an application of this because I would venture to say that most in this room, if you've been coming to Parkway for a while, will affirm and say, yes, I believe that salvation is caused by God. Ultimately, my choice to choose him was dependent upon his choice to choose me. And that he starts it, and he blows the wind, and he awakens the soul, yes. But then it's easy to fall into a different trap of thinking that, okay, God begins the work, he starts salvation, he gives the new birth, but now that it's started, it's up to me to make progress. So now, he starts the car, now I get the wheel and I'm responsible for driving the car. And uh, let me just say, it's an embedded attitude in many Christians to believe that my Christian growth is up to my choice. I, I have to choose to grow, and I have to make decisions to grow, and I need to study the Bible to grow, and I need to pray to grow, and I need to gather with the church and worship to grow. And inadvertently, we place the weight of our salvation on our shoulders and not on His. 
Because we think he starts it, but he doesn't finish it. Now, I'm not saying, get me here, you need to read your Bible to grow. You need to pray to grow. You need to gather and worship and encourage one another to grow. We need to make decisions and choices to grow. But how we approach those things is extremely important. Because if we think for one moment that we're in charge of our growth, we got it wrong. Um, The Apostle Paul, he rebuked the Galatian Christians for thinking just this way, falling into this trap of, oh, it begins with grace, it begins with the Spirit, but now it's up to us. And so he says, are you so foolish? That's a strong word. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, there's a start again, are you now being perfected by the flesh that is... Is it now on you? He calls it complete foolishness. The Christian life not only begins with the Spirit, but it is carried out, progresses, and grows, grows, grows based on the Spirit and grace. That never changes. It's not as if he begins it and then we carry it. It will break, it will frustrate you, and you will not find yourself in the end growing. So let me put it this way. In our attempts to grow, let's take, I'll just go through them all. The obedience that we're to offer to the Lord should be a dependent obedience. That inner knowledge that I can't obey unless God provides grace for me to obey. And so we obey dependently. That our Bible study, just simply studying the Bible without dependence does not grow you. But rather to be able to take God's word and in a dependent spirit say, Lord, teach me your ways that I may walk in your truth. That's, that's David, uh, one of the Psalms. Teach me your ways that I may walk. He knows that the master teacher, the one who takes the word and breaks it down so that we can change by it, is the Lord, not our mind. In fact, more important than our interpretive techniques is a fact that we have a dependent mind knowing, I need your help to ingest this truth. That's dependent Bible study dependent prayers, knowing that ultimately my prayers fall flat on the ground unless energized by grace and carried up to the throne in the name of Jesus. That the decisions that we make and that we have to make must be dependent choices and decisions. Because only those dependent choices and decisions ultimately honor him because you're saying, I can't choose this unless you help me. So I, I hope you hear the truth is the Spirit of God just doesn't begin salvation. He carries it and progresses it and grows it and he will finish it. And our job is to depend upon that. In fact, one could say that Christian growth is simply a growth in the dependence upon the Lord which produces a sense of love and hope. More and more across Christian life is just simply recognizing that I'm completely dependent on him in terms of my children's salvation. So I pray for them because I know that he's in charge, not me. 
to know that this church, nothing can happen in this church unless he does it, not me and not you. And to develop that sense of dependent spirit, that's called faith. And when that happens, the wind blows. The wind blows. If you want an image, and what came to my mind this week was a sailboat. You know, you hoist the sails, and people take their positions on the ship um, based upon their gifting and providential shaping. And, but everybody on the ship knows that unless the wind blows, we aren't going anywhere. So the most important thing that the church and we as individuals can do is keep our eyes and hearts dependent upon the Lord and praying and petitioning and saying, we need your wind to blow. We need a gale force to energize our lives and our ministries and our church. And if it doesn't blow, nothing's going to happen. The Levin ministry is like a little lifeboat, and it's an amazing ministry, but if the Spirit doesn't send his wind, it doesn't work that uh, the new impressive buildings at the Bridge to Life Center at Mission Solano, unless the wind blows, it's not going to do anything. This church, no matter what we do or what we say or what we write on our doctrinal statement, doesn't make a difference if the Spirit of God does not blow his wind into the sails of this church. But it's only as we depend upon the Lord that that wind begins to blow. So I want you to see that the Lord is in charge here, my friends. And that is a freeing thing. I just know he began it, and what he began, he's going to continue, and what he's going to continue, he's going to complete, because it's his work, and ultimately, he's the controlling, determining factor, and in that, I place my confidence, and so should you. In response to this, if you're here with somebody, will you just simply pray with them audibly that God would blow his wind into the sails of our lives in this church, however you want to do it, whether it's a ministry or your own soul or the soul of the person next to you. Uh, If you're here by yourself, you can pray by yourself. If you're uncomfortable praying out loud, you don't have to. But this is a church, and we cry out to God. one One of the main evidences of dependence is prayer. And so will you just lift up some prayers and ask the Lord to just fill the sails of of his people, that he's the mover and shaker. He's the controlling, determinative factor. Let the wind blow. Let the wind blow. So let's lift up prayers to the Lord now, and then we'll sing a couple of closing songs. Mm-hmm.